Thank you, Jamal. It's so good you're in history. You're finally going to be able to tell us why we are in this mess. Why Turkey has become what it is. Why the Ottomans declined. Why they never caught up with Europe. Why, you, it can take different forms. Why, why we are who we are. It's the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby. That was Jamal Kafadar summarizing some of the ways that others see his task as a historian. Jamal Kafadar is the Vehbi Coach Professor of Turkish Studies at Harvard University. In this part two of our interview with Kafadar, Miriam Patton, Chris Grayton, and I talk with him about how writing histories of place can help us transcend the exclusionary nationalism of the present, as well as complicate the ideas about us and them implicit in those questions he just mentioned facing. We'll also discuss the Gezi Park protests in historical perspective, and, in closing, we'll pick up on a thread from part one of our interview, The Life of Jem Sultan. Stay with us. As an Ottoman historian, one thing that is very meaningful to me is what I wrote in the first sentence of this book in Turkish. Tarih yazıcılığı özgürleştirmiyorsa zulme hizmet ediyordur. If history writing does not emancipate, it must be serving tyranny. I'm at a stage in my life where I feel comfortable saying that. I would have shied away from a statement like this, even though it was my feeling for a long, long time, that it has, I hope, when it's well done, an emancipatory effect for people living different experiences of suppression, oppression, subjugation. I grew up in the manufacturing, artisanal, craftsmanly, small trades neighborhood. I really cherish a good artisan's, a good craftsman's work. I think there is a deep morality and honesty to doing good work. You know, carpenter's kind of good work, or a tailor's kind of good work, or a historian's kind of good work. And the word for, I think the word craft, again, comes from Mark Bloch, Craft. Yeah, the historian's craft. But I think also Vernon used it as vocation. But our craft is our vocation, he says at some point, again, during his his involvement in the resistance, while also trying to be a classicist. The first thing, and number one thing that we need to recognize is whatever work it does, emancipatory or not, it has to be good work to, to do any kind of thing out there in the world, morally, politically, if it does anything of that sort, it really has to be good work. And on that, one cannot just, you know, one cannot compromise on the craft to political ends. I, I know I'm saying something very obvious, but it needs to be said. So how has writing Ottoman history been an act of emancipation or been emancipatory for you. And again, we're not necessarily meaning in the narrowest sense of emancipation, but when you wrote that sentence, what were you really thinking of with all the decades of work that you've done studying a lot of different topics, um, most of them fun, as you said at the beginning of our interview. Yes. Coffee, vampires, whatever. It doesn't this is have also to be. fun. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's a tough one. I don't know if I want to get into it. I can see the way Anadolu has, in the course of the 20th century, turned into an ideological instrument toward certain ends. Anatolia exemplifies or, or invokes the heartland, the part that is not corrupt, 
and sophisticated like Istanbul or Izmir is often the implication not always said, but it's the heartland, it's, it's the incorruptible essence of our people. To be very crude about it, it can, in certain uses, in certain instances, it can imply this is the land of the Turks in an exclusionary way. It can say that, or it can say it in a more inclusionary way, but it can, in an exclusionary way, do exactly that work, Anadolu'culuk. I thought about this. That's why I tried to work on its history. To take another example. A few years ago, a uh, building, modest but very elegant remnant of a complex in, in Hakkari, or in Van, sorry, in Van, was surrounded by these Toki buildings. That's part of the also story of our, some of us, for some of us, the, the big frustration with the construction and what it does. So it was surrounded by these Toki buildings. Some people protested it. And it's a pre-Ottoman building. So it immediately became, by the well-meaning folks who want to protect the building, who want to do justice to its historic uh, meaning, called it a Selçuklu building. And it suddenly became the truth about that building. No, it is by a princess of the Hakkari Beyli, Hakkari Kurdish Beyli of the 14th century. Now, here, a narrative structure that envelopes a geography unintentionally does a kind of work that can again be, it is clearly exclusionary. And for some people, it could also be an excuse not to say it's a Kurdish heritage, or it's, it's the architectural heritage of Turkey that needs protection from a Kurdish bay of the 14th century. So intentional may be a part of it, but unintentionally at first, this uh, characterization of the building came about because Selçuklu, Osmanlı, Cumhuriyet has become, even for professionals, even for academics, a standard way to refer to our story. Whose story is it? Who are the we? So lately, I've been really trying to ask, how do Ottomanists say we? Who is the we and our in the thing we study? Where is the place that we study? What is it called in our sources and when? To me, personally, first of all, it plays that emancipatory role of thinking of that geography and of that history independent of the exclusionary practices of particular nationalisms. I want to write something called the Gezi as an event and it's just churning in my mind and in my notes and that, that has an ontological dimension. It has to have, what is an event? The Ottoman historians, the chroniclers, whom I love to read again and again and again. Chronicles, as you know, write about vaka, uh, event. What is this category that they call event? The fact that we haven't asked this question uh, is, I don't want to say things like, it's inexcusable, I don't, <laughs> everything is excusable. <laughs> In my dissertation, I had not thought of the category of the event seriously there. But I dealt with the fact that Künhül Ahbar, last volume, 
last sultan, uh, Mustafa Ali. Of course, I was then reading Cornel Fleischer's dissertation, which was not yet published as a book. I'm grateful to him for sending it to me. You know, in those days, it wasn't easy for somebody in Chicago just to send you a bunch of, you know, loose leaf papers and uh, taking the time to photocopy it and all of that. And, you know, it was an eye-opening read, uh, inspiring read. I read it. So Mustafa Ali, I was already dealing with in my dissertations. I had now... Uh, even deeper questions, I think, thanks to inflation. So one of the things that's very, very uh, important is that he writes about the age of Murad III as a series of disorders. He writes of events in the age of Suleiman. He writes of events in the age of Selim II. And then he says, in the age of Murad III, he rests in peace, because he's writing just a couple of years after Murad's passed away. Uh, things have started to go disorderly. And that's when he's going to be speaking of ikhtilal. Right. The world is becoming muhtalbem shevesh, right? Topsy-turvy, disorderly. And then he talks about the way these incidents, let's call them, which exemplify or which are the key moments when things started to go topsy-turvy. So he's clearly thinking about the categories of his narrative analytically. It is for us, for me, I think, to understand what his analytical uh, instruments and what his analytical mode are. Uh, so the category of the event is very big, and for me, what brought this all this to my way of thinking in a big way lately is Gezi. What is Gezi? What is an event? It seems like you've you've resisted this tendency to get lost in scholarship as outside of politics. Uh-huh. Or another way of saying that is, how do you go from the early modern empire, Ottoman Empire, to Gezi? Ah. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I think some people would see those things as as disconnected. Yes. And have you always seen these things closely connected in your own work, in your own well, life? Well, not or? necessarily. And in fact, I tried to at least worry about making facile connections and parallelisms. Also, reading biographies of historians, especially historians one admires for many of us in my generation, I think it's still true for you. Uh, the French historians of the early, mid, and somewhat into the late 20th century, many of them having been part of the resistance. Jean-Pierre Vernon is one of my heroes, for instance. Brodel, of course, started writing his Mediterranean as a prisoner, as a captive, so on and so forth. Uh, and, And they've never been shy about speaking to the fact that their work is informed by their times and by their lives and by their own concerns, including the very political types of concerns that you mentioned. As for Gizzi, you know, to me, the question that has been with me for the longest period since I start, decided that I wanted to be historian has been the Janissary rebellions, so-called Janissary rebellions, the series of political uprisings that punctuate Ottoman political life from the late 16th to the early 19th century. And to me, that's a big part of the story of Ottoman early modernity. So the Janissary rebellions, and which ultimately obviously culminates with their uh, demolition or annihilation, etc., is this big thing. And that has to do with the, 
you know, with, with, with another question in my mind, if the political culture and public life of these pre-modern societies, in my case, the Ottoman one, is to be understood beyond the binary of despotism versus chaos. That is what was offered when I was first reading on these matters. It just didn't work. It just didn't explain the kinds of things I was trying to understand. That there must be something beyond the despotism versus chaos binary that has its own logic of political order, disorder, contestation, negotiation, so on and so forth. The Janissary rebellions come into this for its relationship to that question regarding the nature of politics in pre-modern Islamic societies, Ottoman, or say Istanbul really is more specifically even if one wants to go there in particular. Right after Gezi, I did an interview in which I called Gezi, and I think it, I called Gezi as part of a series of vakas in Istanbul challenging authority, vakai geziye, I called it. Of course, I mean, the kinds of links between the series of rebellions from the late 16th to the early 19th century is much more clear, compact, observable, palpable, so compared to what happened in Gizzi. That's a, that I recognize that it's a really distant, 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 distant relation, if at all. Coming up, more of our interview with Jamal Kafadar as we talk about history, politics, and sense of place. That's in a minute when our show continues. First of all, I have been involved in some protests and civil society movements regarding urban transformation, especially in Istanbul, for more than a decade. And the first time I publicly said something must be when I was receiving a presidential award in 2010, and I spoke about the bridge that was still being planned, it had not yet been built, across the Golden Horn. And then I met different groups, they found me, and I still regret the fact that I wasn't, not that it would have changed anything, but I really wish I'd fought for Sulukule. The loss of Sulukule is really the pivot. It is the oldest known continuous urban ethnic social fabric in the city of Istanbul. That is the historic city of Istanbul. The only place where we can trace things, at least to the 16th century, more or less the same fabric, really, physically and socially, and in terms of, of course, musical and various other craftsmanly activities, artisanal activities, like working with tin. Do you know the Zildjian company was founded right next to Sulukule because tin, metal, symbols, symbol making, all of that copper uh, was, that's the site where it was being made. So it's part of that nexus. So Sulukule was happening in the early 21st century. <laughs> Uh, then came the, the Golden Horn Bridge, and before Gezi was the Emek protests. The worst day, just a few days before Gezi, happened when our friends, including my niece, were, some of you may have been there, I don't know, they were tear-gassed. I was going there. Mm-hmm. My niece was expecting me, I was going to be part of it. I got stuck for three hours in front of Dolmabahce Stadium, mm-hmm. traffic, because, you know what, Rihanna, was giving a concert. <laughs> Evidently, I had no idea. 
because of her, the traffic was blocked. I couldn't go to Emek. <laughs> and I, I, well, I, in a way, I should be glad. I, would, I was going to get the tear gas, the pepper gas, water cannon, all of that deal. So, you know, it was here. We, the most important thing, whether I was physically there or not, at the time of Gizi, many of us in Istanbul felt continuous to this day, up to here, I have it up to here, no more kind of a thing. And then we heard that Surya Suraya and that was uh, one of the first to go there to protest and the police harassed them and stuff. And that, I was very much a part of that feeling. And I think it happened outside Istanbul, maybe among some of you elsewhere in the world even, right? Or, or if you were in Istanbul, Istanbul that gee, something had to be done. This is coming to, out to the surface now, all of this frustration, all of this anger, all of this thing. And uh, you know, the police reaction was terrible, severe, da, da, da. But then I thought the uh, protesters handled themselves very honorably in so many ways and very creatively, imaginatively. Everyone comments on uh, this and that. But also in terms of unprecedented coexistences, not to say co coalitions. You know, Kurdish group walking next to a Kemalist group and right next to them is a LGBT movement representative. So th this was before Gezi unthinkable. In that sense, it was a really expansion of horizons. So Gezi Forum was the coming together all. It's, it's a much more, it raised the level of awareness and consciousness among the Turkish public. Even the critics of Gezi would agree with this, and among them too. I mean, it just brought things to another level. In that sense, an expansion of horizons is probably really the right expression, that to think of Turkish politics, possibilities of protest, possibilities of suppression, all of those things somewhat differently. And the way then the bridge the, the, the new Bosphorus Bridge, or the airport, or the uh, Canal Istanbul. The way those things are part of public debate now is really a very different from the way such matters would be debated in the 90s, for instance. I guess I'm, I'm struck by those matters and events you just... not They're not events, they're structures, they're physical things in Istanbul, right? Thank you. I guess I wanted to hear a bit more what you think about this relationship between the physical structure in Istanbul and the space and the history. And that seems particularly important for Istanbul and Ottoman history, the space, the physicality of Istanbul. At some level, those questions are relevant for many cities and are not related to Ottomanness. I'll answer this very subjectively now. Please. <laughs> it is... It's a fabulous place. It's a miraculous place. It's, for one thing, that Istanbul is, compared to similar cities, cities of similar scale, is uh, impoverished in terms of green spaces. And uh, also flora and fauna. I mean, Istanbul is blessed with its, for instance, uh, very peculiar fish. I, I cannot imagine the Bosphorus as an area where substantial populations live and derive pleasure, people of very many different classes, without the, without the fish. It's, moreover, it's part of the way you enjoy the seasons, the 
cycles of migrations, migrations of birds. I mean, some of this can be considered, how to put this, unimportant aesthetic pleasures in things like waiting for and watching the migration of the storks around the middle of August. Okay, but to my kind of history, this is a very important part of what makes a society, what makes it move, tick, create, cohere. Oh, it's the season for the migration of the storks. These are the best places to watch it. Let's get together and watch them. Oh, did you see them the other day? I don't know if you've had the pleasure. Have you? Oh, it's around the middle of August, really. You should. It's, you can't take your eyes off if you just catch the sight. But this is just one tiny, tiny element. How else do you make a place? My dear, I've been really mostly working in the last, say, 10, 15 years more consciously about the sense of place as a historical thing. So how do people make themselves or make a place, their place, make themselves of that place? What is the lens of room? Why did people call this place lands of room, in what sense did it give them an idea of a cohering cultural unit? And when you do really start studying place and sense of place, the micro-geographies, micro-ecologies are a big part of it. Do you feel Gurbet? Do I feel? Gurbet. Ah, that's a you know, spending big one. Much of the year here. But going back fairly regularly. Yeah. I do. <laughs> yeah. The short of it. But, you know, you also, someone like me also tries to philosophize <laughs> about it. So is that like your, the human condition? I don't know. You know, I like the song, Schubert as a song, Fremd bin ich eingezogen, fremd sie ich wieder aus. That's something not about, you know, Gurbet in the sense you were asking, but I think it encompasses that as well. And it's a beautiful lead. <laughs> I listen to a lot. There has been some very refined, sophisticated thinking about Gurbet, what it is, what being Garib means, uh, which is, of course, there in songs and uh, poetry, folk poetry, if one wants to read it and think about it. When Orhan Gencebay first came out, one of his big songs was Hor Görme Garibi. It comes from a deep old tradition. Hor Görülmek, yani being, uh, being looked down upon, mm-hmm. is often, at least as a topos, the Garib's experience, and one wants to override it and or do something about it and very good the line from the schubert song based on poetry by wilhelm muller reads a stranger i arrived here a stranger i go hence in closing we continue with the theme of homesickness and strangers by returning to the plan for a movie about the life of jem sultan the son of Sultan Mehmed II, who lost his succession struggle to his half-brother Bayezid II in the late 15th century and was forced into exile in Cairo, then Rhodes, then France, then Rome. Kavadar planned to write the film script about Jem's life with Onat Kutlar, the intellectual and founder of the Cinematheque of Istanbul, 
who died as a result of the PKK's bombing of Istanbul's Marmara Hotel Cafe in 1994. So the screenplay. Which? Oh yes, James Sultan. Uh, okay. What about it? So uh, <laughs> why why did you want to? What was uh, appealing to you about this story? It's a good story to begin with. <laughs> when I wrote this, we're talking now maybe thirty years ago, and I didn't even do the script. Right? I'm talking about a synopsis, and then a treatment, as one says, a treatment. In Turkish, the word synopsis, treatment, uh, scenario. <laughs> we didn't get to the scenario stage. There's the story of the Eastern Mediterranean uh, in conversation with polities of Europe just before it changed very dramatically with the new oceanic voyages. And it's a story of a prince who tries to keep himself together. I, don't <laughs> I mean, there are very many interesting tidbits here. Maybe that's the easier part fascinating, wow, kinds of moments in reading his story. So the more I looked into it, I found that there was this love affair with a woman just outside Grenoble. I did much of this traveling, by the way. Uh, I went to all the chateaus where Jem went after Nice. They first take him to Nice. And there he composes a poem. Ajaib şehrimiş bu şehrin nitse, ki kalur yanına her kişi nitse. Strange place, this town of Nice. One gets away with anything one commits, is how I translated it, because he finds, you know, men and women dancing and sitting on each other's uh, laps and in public, not being as coy or careful about gender segregation, not as mindful of gender segregation as, as the groups that Jem is more familiar with. So th th that's the first impression he seems to have had or found worthy of putting on paper after his journey to France and his encounters. And then he has an affair up further up north near Grenoble, an affair of which in the early 17th century, a local Grenoble intellectual wrote a novel. It's a philosophical novel, one of those things where they debate for page after page. What is the true nature of love? Jem asks the woman. Uh, but it seems to be based on a real affair that he had there. And the chateau of that family is still there, Sassinage. In, in Rome, his story is of interest for other vignettes, including the parties. Where, and, and some of those Pinturicchio de depictions are from those parties, one of them where Cesare Borgia is on a horseback in oriental dress. On the right. Many people thought that was Jem in the picture, whereas Jem is actually on foot and looking rather sad and directly at you. This is in the Vatican. That sadness, that sense of gourbet, <laughs> his... Uh, companion who wrote Jem's story after Jem died titled it Gurbet Name. Maybe that also was part of the appeal of the story. So he appears in these bits and pieces and I've always been interested in put, piecing together. That's one thing I've been interested in, if anything, piecing together the narrative of a life from 
fragments. One could say that about James' life, we know so much. Why fragments? Well, especially after he goes to Europe, it's really fragmentary. But even, even something like Gurbet Name, I think, uh, can be considered just fragments of James' life there. Putting together a life story, worrying about both the much larger context, as much as it gives us anything of that sort, and the, and the very uh, specific environment of that person, of which we know only bits and pieces, kind of a challenge. James' story is full of these fascinating vignettes, interesting bits and pieces about one person and one environment, about one person and one polity. You know, when Jim dies, he, he had a parrot with him as a pet. So when he dies, some of his books came with Jim from Rome, with Jim's coffin, that is, from Rome to Istanbul. His parrot also came. His parrot had been taught to say, Jem Ezafer, Jem Ezafer, Jem Ezafer. And when Jem died, they taught the parrot to say, Jem Rahmet, Jem Rahmet, Jem Rahmet. That in itself to me is enough for venturing into it. <laughs> he also had a monkey, just a character. He corresponded with his mother who remained in Cairo. We have a couple of those letters. So there's a good deal of that kind of stuff to bring together a life story of a fascinating, tragic character on the eve of dramatic transformations in the Mediterranean and in the world at large. We were hoping to bring all that to life. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Of course, as always, you can find more information, including a bibliography, on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, as well as links to some of our over 400 episodes. You can also join us on Facebook, where the community of listeners is over 35,000 strong. That's it for this episode. Until next time, take care.